God bless you all. It's good to see everyone here this morning on this Lord's Day that God's given to us. If you're visiting with us, we're especially glad you're, you're here with us. Thank you for taking time on uh, this Lord's Day to come out here and to gather with us as uh, the gathered church together to sing praises to God, fellowship, and we have the opportunity now to open uh, God's Word together. Uh, we're going we're gonna to finish Philippians next week. If, you've, if you're visiting with us, we've been in a study of Philippians, so you're, you're getting in on a little bit of the end of that. So we'll finish Philippians next Sunday, and a lot of times people begin to ask me, well, where are we going next? And uh, the plan is for our next book study that, to be the book of Nehemiah, uh, but we're not going to begin that till after Easter because uh, I'm going to be gone a couple weeks in March to uh, Israel. We're taking a, about 50 people to Israel. Then we get back and we have Palm Sunday and Easter. So it'd be kind of chopped up if we started. So uh, what I want to do is just kind of do some, some one-time messages during the month of February. And uh, then we'll get to uh, the book of Nehemiah uh, after Easter, uh, Lord willing, on that April the 8th. But uh, in the meantime, this morning, we're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. So if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, we're going to look at these verses this morning. Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 10 through 13. Let me read these for us as uh, we begin here this morning. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, so reads God's inspired and errant word. There's a, a story about an airline pilot who was flying over uh, the Tennessee mountains, and he pointed out to his co-pilot, he said, you see that little lake down there? He said, when I was a kid, I used to sit in a rowboat down there and, and fish. And he said, every time I would see an airplane fly over, I would look up and I would wish that I was flying that airplane. And he says, now I look down, I wish I was in that rowboat fishing. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that in life? When, when you got what you wanted and maybe it wasn't what you expected, it didn't quite bring the satisfaction uh, that you thought it would. Look, all of us, if we're honest, would say that, that the sense of contentment in our lives, of satisfaction, uh, can be very elusive in life. We go after what we think will make us happy, only to find that it didn't work. And in fact, sometimes we find out we were happier uh, when we began the quest than where we are at this point. It's like the, the story of the two teardrops floating down the river of life. One teardrop said to the other, who are you? She said, well, I'm a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? So I'm a teardrop from the girl who got him. <laughs> life can be like that, right? We search for something more or something different, and we find out that it doesn't really satisfy. Look, everything in your life and in my life creates opportunities for us to either have contentment or discontent, one or the other. Everything in life is an opportunity to either be content or discontent. Your family, your friendships, your marriage, uh, the career path you're on, the money you make, the vacations you take, your physical health, whatever it is, every one of these situations in life are an opportunity to either be content or discontent. And the human condition is, the human tendency is, we always want something more or something better or something different. So I think it would do us well this morning to ask ourselves, how satisfied am I with the circumstances and the lot in life that I'm experiencing right now? 
Am I, I live, am I living a life every day where I experience satisfaction and contentment? Or do I live a life of dissatisfaction and kind of a restlessness down on the inside? There's a story about a, a, rich, uh, a rich industrialist, a, a wealthy man, and he was down along the coast of Mexico on a vacation. And he was disturbed to find this fisherman kind of lying there lazily next to a boat. And he says, why aren't you out there fishing? And the guy said, well, I already caught enough fish for today. And the guy said, well, why don't you go catch more fish? And the guy said, well, what would I do then? He said, well, you could earn more money. He said, you could get a better boat and go out further and go deeper and catch more fish. You could buy nylon nets and catch even more fish and make more money. And soon you could have a whole fleet of boats and you could be rich like me. And the guy said, well, then what would I do? He said, well, then you could sit down and enjoy your life. And the guy said, what do you think I'm doing now? (laughs) So again, we live that way, that more will somehow make us happier in life. I read this statement by someone. They said, everyone lives in a tent. We all live in one of two tents, content or discontent. And that's a pretty good way to put it. Every one of us live in one of those two tents in life. And contentment, I think we all would, would recognize, is something great that we ought to have in life, but, but it's a, a very rare treasure that I think few people find in life. But here in Philippians 4, in our passage this morning, we meet a contented man. Now you say, well, he must be rich and successful and healthy and, and living the good life, right? No, wrong. It's the Apostle Paul. He's under house arrest in Rome. He has adverse circumstances, advancing age. He's dependent on other people for support, and his life literally is hanging in the balance. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. You look at what he says, I have learned to be content. He's a content and satisfied man. Now, what does it mean to be content? We notice the word here in verse 11, I've learned to be content. It's a Greek word that means to be satisfied or to have enough or to have sufficiency. Um, It's used over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 by Paul. You remember uh, Paul had, had gone to heaven and God gave him a thorn in the flesh so that he wouldn't be exalted or too prideful. And Paul asked the Lord three times to take it away. And the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient. It's that same Greek word. It's enough. It's sufficient. It's, it will satisfy. Uh, this word that's translated here in our Bibles, content in verse 11, was a, a great word of pagan ethics. It was the highest aim of the Stoics. You probably heard in, in Greek uh, uh, times of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Well, uh, the Stoics, this was the highest aim in life for them because they believed that this word was true of a person who through discipline became independent of external circumstances. They had a a sense of self-sufficiency. In other words, this was a person that didn't need resources from the outside, that they were more than adequate on the inside to meet any circumstance of life. So they were self-sufficient, didn't need any outside help. Now, Christian contentment, the way Paul uses the word here, is also an independence from outward circumstances, but it's not through dependence on our own resources, but in dependence upon the Lord Jesus. So there's a big difference. It means to have sufficiency in Christ, to, to, be, to, to have enough or to be satisfied in Christ Jesus. In fact, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary says that contentment, you could call it containment, and that is that contained within us, within our life in Christ, is everything we need to face of the circumstances of life. 
Now, I've got two points here, two simple points this morning to take us through this text. I want to look briefly in verse 10 at the context of this passage, and then I want to look and spend most of our time in verses 11 through 13 on the contentment. Now, notice the context here in verse 10. Uh, the date of this writing, when Paul writes Philippians, is, is 62 A.D. Um, uh, Paul's under house arrest in Rome. If you want to read about that, you can read Acts 28. It talks about this first Roman imprisonment of Paul when he was under house arrest. It's about 10 years now since Paul founded the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. So about 10 years have gone by. And the Philippians, when Paul went to the city of Philippi and founded the church there, they were one of the first churches to begin to support Paul financially, to help him. If you go down to verse 15, Paul says, You yourselves know, Philippians, at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, that's where they lived, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So these believers had, had been helping Paul, but evidently they hadn't sent Paul a financial gift for some period of time. And so one day Paul's there under house arrest, and a man named Epaphroditus shows up. You read his name down in verse 18. And he brought a gift, a financial gift, from the Philippians, 800 miles away, to Paul there under house arrest in the city of Rome. And Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, or literally you could translate that immensely, that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Now that word revived is from agriculture or botany, and it's a word that literally means to blossom. Paul says, look, your love for me has blossomed again, and you've sent me all this financial gift. Now when you read verse 10, it can sound like Paul's making kind of a subtle criticism of them of the Philippians, because he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. It's kind of like, you know, finally, you guys have sent me some money again. Paul's not criticizing them, because notice the next words, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So Paul isn't criticizing them for not sending a gift for a while. He knows that all along they had loved him and wanted to support him, but there was a lack of opportunity for them to do it. Now you say, well, what was the lack of opportunity? We don't know for sure, but we do know that the Macedonian believers in Philippi were extremely poor. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul tells us that. Those believers in Macedonia were in abject poverty. So it may have been they lacked opportunity because they, just, they had nothing. But it's also possible, and I think probably more likely, that one of the reasons they had lacked opportunity for a while to give Paul any money was Paul was a man on the move. I mean, Paul was constantly, he, he was a moving target. And think about back in those days how, how slowly news traveled. So to find out where Paul was to send him some financial support probably was very difficult. But somehow they finally found out that Paul's under house arrest in Rome, and when they find out where he is, as quickly as they can, they send this gift through Epaphroditus. And when Paul receives this gift, he breaks out in praise and thanksgiving to God for what they've done. You see verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And so there's a lot of purposes to the letter to the Philippians, but one of the most important one is this letter that we've been studying is a thank you note. It's a thank you note from Paul to the Philippians for their help. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, some of his first words, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then he ends the letter thanking them for the gift they've sent. So kind of like bookends at each end of the letter, we have thankfulness and gratitude. 
So Paul wants him to know he didn't take the gift for granted. And I love this. I rejoiced greatly or immensely in the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Paul thanks them for giving the money, but who's the one that he ultimately thanks? It's the Lord. I rejoiced immensely in the Lord. God gets all the credit for what they'd done. So Paul was grateful for the gift, but he goes on in verses 11 to 13 because he wants them to know that the money they sent was not the source of his contentment. He wants them to know, look, I'm grateful you sent the money, I'm thankful, I'm rejoicing, but he wants them to know whether you all send me money or you don't send me money, I'm going to be content either way. So he's wanting to model for them and for us a heart of uh, contentment. Paul wants them and he wants us to know that his sufficiency lies somewhere else. Now that brings us to the contentment. And I want to look at three things about Paul's contentment that we want to be true in our lives. First of all, contentment is dynamic. It's dynamic. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul's saying, look, whatever circumstance I'm in, I'm content and satisfied. In verse 11, he says, whatever circumstance I'm in. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance. You see, it's dynamic. In other words, it applies in every situation of life. It's at all times, Paul has a continual contentment in his life and satisfaction. John Phillips, in his commentary on Philippians, uh, says this. I, I read this this week. This really ministered to me. He said, whatever his circumstances were, Paul was content. When he was hailed enthusiastically upon his return to churches he'd planted, Paul was content. When he was chained to a particularly impatient and unsympathetic Roman soldier, Paul was content. When he and his friends were on their way to Jerusalem to deliver a generous gift from Gentile converts on the mission field, Paul was content. When he was preaching to scholars in the intellectual capital of the world, Paul was content. When he was leading a runaway slave to Christ, Paul was content. When he was preaching to a king, Paul was content. When he was writing a theological masterpiece, Paul was content. When he was waiting to appear before a court that could sentence him to death, Paul was content. And on and on we could go. Paul experienced all the extremities and the highs and the lows of life. He experienced both extremes and everything in between. And Paul says, in all of that, I can say that I'm a man who's content. What Paul's saying here is, look, if I have plenty, that doesn't make me more content. And if I have lack, that doesn't make me less content. He has a, a contentment that goes beyond circumstances. Paul's a man for all seasons. When he says here in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. Humble means means to be brought low by poverty. To, to be brought low, it, it literally means to, to live in poverty. And so Paul knew what it was like to live a life, not just of being poor, but living a life in poverty. There may be some of you here that in your background, you lived a life and, and you lived in poverty. I know some of you that, were, that grew up during the Depression and during that time especially. Uh, my dad, uh, some of you don't know this about my father, his, uh, my grandfather and his wife left in 1923 from San Francisco 
and uh, sailed to Japan and, and Korea as missionaries all the way back in 1923. They came back to uh, Missouri in 1930, and the Depression had hit, so they didn't have any resources to be able to go back and do that. So my grandfather began working in some different ministries there and all. But when my dad was little, for a, a couple of years, at least two or three years' time, they lived in a boxcar, literally in a boxcar, and they had eight kids. And uh, my dad used to tell me how they'd open the end of it and they'd all get in a big line and get things and shoo the flies out the end and then slam the door. You know, of course, there's still thousands of them in there. But I met a guy years ago who knew, my, who, who knew my grandfather and knew their family. And he was telling me, he goes, whenever your dad's family was, he goes, we were really poor. But he goes, your parent, your dad's family, they were really poor. I mean, they were like as poor as you can get. So, you know, my dad, he doesn't talk about it all the time, but I mean... You, we were, we're around people sometimes who, who really experience poverty, uh, something like I, I've never had to experience, thankfully, in my life. So Paul says, I know what that means. But then he says, but I, I've experienced prosperity, which that word means to overflow or to have enough. And it literally, you could translate it, Paul says, I've been extremely rich. Now, we don't think of Paul that way, but when Paul was a Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, before he becomes Paul the apostle, he was probably an extremely wealthy person. So Paul knew what it was like to have wealth, and there, there was nothing wrong with that. It, it's nothing wrong that with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with having poverty. And then he says, I know what it's like to be filled. And that word literally means to be stuffed. Back in that day, they would force feed animals to fatten them up. Paul says, I know what it's like to be stuffed. That's kind of what we experienced over the holidays, probably a little bit, all of us, right? A couple of times I had that. Man, you're just stuffed, and it feels good. And Paul says, I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to have abundance. I know what it's like to suffer need. And Paul says, in all of those different circumstances of life, I'm content. Again, Paul was ready for anything. Uh, Paul was content whatever, whenever, wherever in life. As one person said, Paul was always up for whatever was coming down. I like that. That's a dynamic contentment. And what Paul is saying to us here is that contentment is not something that's external, but it's internal. It's down inside. Paul's contentment in Christ, or Paul's contentment's in Christ and in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, not in his circumstances. Look, if we're honest, many of us have what we could describe as a contingent contentment, right? We would say, a lot of us would say, if we're honest this morning, every one of us here might be able to say, well, I would be content if only right? If only. I mentioned last week Max Lucado's book, Anxious for Nothing. And here's another quote from the book. This is good. He says, the widest river in the world is not the Mississippi, the Amazon, or the Nile. The widest river on earth is a body of water called If Only. Throngs of people stand on its banks and cast longing eyes over the waters. They desire to cross, but they can't seem to find the ferry. They're convinced the, the If Only River separates them from the good life. If only I were thinner, I'd have the good life. If only I were richer, I'd have the good life. If only the kids would come. If only the kids were gone. That's pretty good, isn't it? If only I could leave home, move home, get married, get divorced. If my skin were clear, if my calendar was free of people, if my profession was immune to layoffs, then I would have the good life, the if only river. And then he closes with this. Are you standing on the shore of the if only river? Does it seem the good life's always one if only away, one purchase away, one promotion away, one election, transition, or romance away? 
Look, I, I hope that's not true of you this morning, that you're, you're saying, look, I would be content if only, if only I had better health, if only my children were more obedient, if only I had more money, if only my husband were more loving, if only if my wife were more submissive. Again, on and on we could go. The Bible says, the Bible doesn't say be content when you have, it says be content with what you have. So like the poem, I'm sure many of you have heard this, the old poem, it was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves, the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, beautiful snow, the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. It's the way life is for far too many people. But Paul was always content because he had a dynamic contentment. Are you content with what you have in life? Or, or maybe even better, we could say, are you content with what you don't have? Are you content with what you don't have? read a book this last week, and there was a story in there about David Ben-Gurion. He was the first prime minister of Israel. And of course, when Israel was founded in 1948, all the nations around them descended upon them, and it was a, a really a series of life and death crises for the, for the infant uh, modern state of Israel. And someone asked David Ben-Gurion what he needed, and he said this, the only thing we need are things that begin with the letter A, a lot of tanks, a lot of money, a lot of guns, and a lot of food. <laughs> and I thought about that as I read it. That's the way a lot of people are. Everything they need in life starts with the letter A, right? They need a lot of money, a lot of good health, a lot of nice cars, a lot of good looks, on and on we could go. So the secret to happiness for many people is a lot of a lot of things. But not Paul, his contentment was a dynamic contentment. Look, here's a great quote. If you aren't satisfied with what you have, more won't help. It's true, isn't it? If you're not satisfied with what you have, more won't help. The great philosopher Immanuel Kant said this, give a man everything he wants, and at that moment, everything will not be everything. <laughs> when you finally think you got everything, there's always one more thing, something else. It's sad, isn't it? But it's all too common. It, it's the myth of more. It's the myth of more. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Let your character be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Let me read over in uh, 1 Timothy 6 something that Paul wrote to Timothy about contentment. In 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, Paul says this, Godliness is a means, means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You can just stop right there and say, boy, that's, that's way off from, from my life, right? And then listen to this. We've all seen this worked out in life. Listen, these are powerful words. Those who want to get rich. And when it says those who want to get rich, it means this is the focus of their life. It's not just someone who says, look, I'd like to have some more money. There's nothing wrong with that. But people that want to get rich, it's the focus of life. Fall into a temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. I often hear this verse quoted. People say money is the root of evil. It's not money. It's the love of money. 
is the, is the root of all sorts of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Saying, look, if the focus in life is more and money, you're going you're gonna to pierce yourself with many a pang in your life. It leads to ruin. It leads to destruction. Now, with all that I've said here this morning, I want to give two qualifications to this. It's interesting, a couple of young guys after the last service came and talked to me about this because this is important. Being content with what you have doesn't mean you can't try to better yourself, right? I mean, otherwise you say, well, I just got to be content. You know, I've got to, you know, I've, I've, I've finished the third grade now, and so I'm going to stop and not get any more education. I just got to be content with where I am. If you're a kid sitting here this morning, it's 10 years old or whatever. No, it doesn't mean you can't better yourself. Contentment is not complacency about the things in our lives that should be changed. And contentment, I don't think, is accepting mediocrity. Every one of us here, whatever God has given us to do, we should work hard at it. And if God provides for you to get more education, get educated, get a skill. Uh, and whatever you do, do it with persistence and do it with excellence. That pleases God. But in all that we do in life, wherever our lot is at a certain time, we need to be content and satisfied. In other words, if you hate your job this morning here, don't say, well, I just got to keep this job forever. If you hate your job and you can get a job that you're going to like, go get the other job. But in the meantime, we have to be satisfied and be content and not be complaining and, and bitter and frustrated and angry about that. So don't take what I'm saying this morning to mean that you, you can't improve your lot in life if God gives you the opportunity to do that. I think we should do that. We want to maximize the opportunities that God gives to us. Here's a second qualification. Be content with what you have, but never be content with what you are. The problem for many of us here, we're very content in what we are, but we're not content with what we have. It's the opposite. Never be content with what you are. We ought to, all of us here this morning, have a deep-seated holy discontent down in our lives. We ought to say every day, I'm not nearly what I need to be for the Lord. I mean, look at Paul back in chapter 3, just a few verses up in chapter 3 and uh, verse um, 12, Paul says, not that I've obtained it or already become perfect, I press on that I can lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Paul's constantly pursuing uh, the process of becoming more like Jesus. He's not satisfied with that, but he is satisfied with what he has. What I would say again, many of us have it backwards. We're probably pretty satisfied with our spiritual lives that we ought to be dissatisfied with, but we're not satisfied with what we have, which we should be satisfied with. So contentment is dynamic. It's dynamic. It, it, it's, we're to be a man and a woman for all seasons. Secondly, though, contentment is developed. It's developed. Notice twice, once in verse 11, once in verse 12, most translations have the word, I have learned. I've learned to be content. So you have it twice here. And that tells us contentment for you and me. It's not instant. It's not innate. It's not instinctive. It's not intuitive. Contentment is not automatic in life. It's not part of the basic software package we get when we're born into this world. In fact, we're born discontent. Contentment is not natural to us, but it's learned by experience through the ups and the downs of life. It has to be learned over a lifetime. Contentment is acquired by hard work in the school of hard knocks over time. Now, if that's true then who should be the most contented people here at Faith Bible Church? Should be the senior saints, right? 
should be the oldest folks among us. They should be the most content. Because contentment is learned by hard work over time through the experiences of life. Yet sadly, many people who are older in life are more discontent even than people who are younger. Someone said this. This is a a powerful statement for all of us to think about. The devil's crowning work is a bitter, discontent old person. Satan's worked in their life and just made them bitter and discontent. Someone who failed all the exams of life that God has sent their way over the decades, and they've just gotten bitter instead of better. May God help us to not have that happen to us. May God save us from that type of an experience, to allow the the, the circumstances of life to, to breed within our heart and life by God's grace a sense of contentment. Paul says in verse 12, I've learned the secret. Now, that's a different Greek word than the word in verse 11. And literally, it it means I've been initiated. What Paul's doing, he's appealing to to some language from the mystery religions of that day. If If you joined one of these mystery religions, there was different stages or steps they would take you through, or degrees. Kind of like, uh, I guess, if you're in uh, a fraternity or a sorority, right? You kind of go through different initiation rites. You learn more things until you're finally a full initiate or a member. It's kind of like the Masonic Lodge. You, know, you go through different degrees and learn these different things, and finally you become a fully initiated member. That's what Paul's saying. He says, look, God's taken me, if you will, kind of like through the different degrees And I've finally been initiated and learned the secret of contentment. I like to call it the secret society of the satisfied that Paul has become a member of. So bit by bit, test by test, circumstance by circumstance, we move through the degrees, if you will, in life until we learn the secret of contentment. It's the only way to learn it. It's through experience and time, submitting ourselves to the Lord. I know I've told this story in some form or fashion, but uh, my friend Dr. Stanley Toussaint, who was my favorite professor at Dallas Seminary, spoken here at our church several times. He had polio when he was a boy, and um, when he got older, he got post-polio syndrome. And um, one of the last times that I saw him before he had a, a massive stroke and then passed away not long after that, I was in the living room with him and his wife, Maxine. And um, he was uh, just radiant and cheerful, and, but his life had been, become totally limited. He wasn't able to travel, go anywhere and speak anymore, and the things that he'd loved to do all those years. And I knew how much that must pain him to be kind of trapped really there at home and, and not be able to, to go and speak and, and, and do the things he loved. And I asked him how he was handling all of that, and he, he made this statement. I think I've told you all before. He said, Mark, he said, I learned to accept it. That's all he said, I learned to accept it. He said, if you don't accept it, you're just going to be frustrated and bitter and discontent. He says, I've just learned to accept it. I love the way he said it. I learned to accept it. It wasn't natural, but he learned. He'd been through many, many trials and things in life, and he learned the sufficiency of Christ, and he learned to accept it. You, some of you know Ray Pritchard. He spoke here last uh, summer when Cheryl and I were away on our sabbatical, had him come up and speak. He's uh, uh, been a preacher for many, many years. He's uh, living down in Dallas now. But he wrote something that he put on the internet on a blog a while back. It's called Be a Student, Not a Victim. And if, if you can Google that, Ray Pritchard, Be a Student, Not a Victim, and you can find that there. But he said this, a victim says, why did this happen to me? A student says, what can I learn from this? A victim blames other people for his problems. A student says, how much of this did I bring on myself? A victim looks at everyone else and says, life isn't fair. A student looks at life and says, what happened to me could have happened to anyone. 
A victim believes his hard times have come because God is trying to punish him. A student understands God allows hard times in order to help us grow. A victim would rather complain than find a solution. A a student has no time to complain because he's busy making the best of the situation. A victim believes that the deck of life is forever stacked against him. A student believes that God is able to reshuffle the cards anytime he wants to. A victim feels so sorry for himself, he has no time for others. A student focuses on helping others so that he has no time to feel sorry for himself. A victim begs God to remove the problems of life so that he can be happy. A student has learned through the problems of life that God alone is the source of all true happiness. It's a great word, isn't it? You can be a victim in life or we can be a student and be learning from the experiences of life and learn to be content. We can learn that Christ is enough in the circumstances of life. A lot of you know James Montgomery Boyce. He came here and spoke in Oklahoma City quite a bit back in the late 90s. Um, he the, uh, was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a great man of God. I got to listen to him several times here and got to meet him a couple of times. And uh, James Montgomery Boyce, in I think it was the year 2000, on Good Friday, the morning of Good Friday, found out that he had liver cancer. I think he was uh, 61 years of age. And it was a very advanced form of liver cancer. And uh, it, it was, in fact, it ravaged his body so quickly, he found out he had it sometime in late March, and he was gone by June. Um, he was not long after he found out he had cancer, he couldn't be at the church anymore. And one of the men who did his funeral talked to Dr. Boyce just, I think, about a day before he died. And he said, at my funeral, he said, there's a message I want you to give to the church. Because he knew he wouldn't see the people again. And so when this man came and spoke at his funeral, he, he spoke these words that Boyce had given him. And, he, and Boyce told him, tell the people I died content in the will of God. But what a statement that is. Here's a guy 61 years old. He's the prime of his life, prime of his ministry. He's struck down quickly, you know, just ravaged quickly. Tell the people I died content in the will of God. Contentment is something that will serve us well in this life, but it will serve us well at the end of life also. I thought, you know, I remember when I read that quote years ago, I thought to myself, that would be one of the greatest things that any person could ever say. I'm dying content in the will of God. But contentment's dynamic. It's for all seasons. Contentment is developed. You've got to learn it. But finally, contentment is divine. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of the best known, most often quoted verses in the New Testament. Um, It's just six words in the Greek. So it's a very pithy little statement in the Greek language. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is a a best-known, often-quoted verse, but very abused and misinterpreted passage of the Bible. Remember when I was lifting weights back in college, guys would come in with these T-shirts with some muscle-bound guy pictured on the shirt with the weight bending over his shoulders to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, I remember one time watching a boxing match on television. This guy came in and on his T-shirt on the front and the back, he's got, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Then I watched the boxing match and the guy got his brains beat out. You know, in the match, I thought, you know, if that really means that God's going to help you win that boxing match, then God isn't much because you just got killed in that boxing match. Look, that's not what it's talking about. You know, I can stand on the tee box on the first tee and quote Philippians 4.13, all I want, and I'm not going to shoot a 70 right? 
Or I can look at a basketball goal with the basketball and quote that, and I'm not going to dunk the ball unless you lower it to eight feet or seven feet or something down there, right? That's not what that's talking about. And it, it, it's misused in that way that, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The all things in verse 13 is defined by verse 12. Again, the context is key. The all things that we can do through the strengthening power of Christ is handling the ups and downs and the varied circumstances of life. That's what he's saying. And the words I can do there literally means to be strong. He's saying I can be strong in all things, in all the the varied circumstances of life. And he says I can do that the end of the verse says, because there is one who is infusing strength into me, is how you could translate that. Literally, I am strong in all the ups and downs of life because there's one inside of me who's infusing his strength into me. That's what Paul is saying. I have a power within me to face all the conditions and the varied circumstances of life because there's someone inside of me who's infusing strength into me. Like Warren Wiersbe says, he says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And what life finds in us depends on what we find daily in Christ and in His Word. So I'd ask you, what are you finding daily in Christ and in His Word? Are you finding Him to be the the strengthener and the enabler in your life? You and I, if we're believers, have within us all that we need. We have a a Christ-fortified strength on the inside to satisfy us and give us contentment. Now, maybe that you're here and you say, well, I don't really know if I know Christ. I don't really know if I have a relationship with Him or not. It's very simple this morning to become a follower of Jesus. You, you, You say something like this in your heart and mind, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I know that I need a Savior. I know I can't save myself. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior that I need. He died for me, and He rose again. I I believe in Him, and I trust in Him to be my Savior. When you do that, God gives you eternal life and forgives your sins. And the Lord Jesus comes and takes up residence in your life to be the strengthener and the enabler to help us handle all the varied circumstances of life. In Christ, we can be ready for anything. We can find contentment. The old story about A.J. Gordon, it's a great old story about that. When he was at the World's Fair, he saw this guy in this brilliant gold suit off in the distance. He's got his hand on this pump, and he's just pumping this this water like crazy. Water's just gushing out everywhere. And he looks at this, and he keeps looking at it, and the guy just never stops. He's relentless. He just keeps going. And So A.J. Gordon gets closer and closer and looking at this, and he's thinking, man, that's just incredible. I've never seen anybody like that in my life. Finally, he gets up closer, and he realizes it's actually a dummy with his hand hooked onto this pump. And what's below there is an artesian well. And so it's the well, literally, that's pumping the man. The man's not pumping the well. And the person who tells this story says, that's the way it is with a Christian. People see us from a distance, and they think, that man or woman really has the power of God. However, when they come closer, they realize we're not pumping out the power of God. Instead, it's pumping us. Paul recognized the source of his power, so he declared, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Look, we have within us an artesian well of strength and enablement. The faucet of God's sufficiency is always on in the life of a believer. It's always available to infuse strength and sufficiency into our lives so that we can be content and satisfied whatever the circumstances of life may be. 
So I'd ask you this morning, are you tapping into that power that's available to you? What did Wiersbe say? What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. What life finds in us depends on what we find daily in Christ and in His Word. What are we finding daily in Christ and in His Word? Are we finding this enablement and finding this strength? You're not on your own to find contentment and satisfaction in your life. It's all available to you. We're Christ fortified on the inside. May God help each one of us to learn the secret of contentment. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you this morning for a Savior who not only forgives our sins and makes us fit for the life to come, but who strengthens us and satisfies us in this life as well. Father, I ask for myself and for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning that you would teach us the secret of contentment, that we can do all things, that we can be content in every circumstance through the one who infuses his strength into us. Father, teach us the sufficiency of your grace for every situation of life. Father, we ask these things in the name of our strengthener and our enabler, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction, please. I was uh, leaving the couple of the last services. A couple of people come and say, well, how are you doing? And I said, well, after this sermon today, what else can you say, right? We're doing well, right? Satisfied, you know. But I pray that that will really be true in our lives. You know, we, we carried burdens here in, with us this morning. I'm sure a lot of us, a lot of circumstances in life that aren't the way we want them to be. But I pray that God will help us to leave here today as, as contented, satisfied people in Him. Again, if you've been a visitor with us this morning, we're so glad you were here with us. If you go out these doors, there's a, a welcome center out there. And uh, there's some folks out there that'd love to, uh, to tell you some more about our church. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with uh, the Lord's blessing upon us. Well, Father, I pray now as we leave here, each one of us, we go to our homes and we go out for this week to accomplish the things you have for us. We'd go out in the strength and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'd go out, Father, thinking often of the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus and be satisfied and content. We ask these things in his dear name. All God's people said.